0: 1972, Joey Gallo killed in Little Italy during dinner at Umberto's Clam House. They get there by violence, and often as not, they leave by violence. Between 3 and $5 million in cash and valuables was taken from the Lufthansa cargo terminal out at Kennedy Airport. So I could give you guys a half a million dollars a year without a problem. New York City is a war zone for mobsters and their targets. Hello everyone, and welcome into episode 51 of The Black Hand, an organized crime history podcast. I'm your host, Bliss Grieve, and on today's show, we're going to be talking about Aga Hassan Abedi and the Bank of Credit and Commerce International, which has been described as the biggest banking scandal in history, including fraud and money laundering. At its height, BCCI collected more than $20 billion in deposits, and a good case can be made that in effect, all of that money was collected fraudulently. More than that, BCCI was a revolution for banking, and they were really one of the first international financial institutions. And with their incredibly decentralized operating structure, they were able to circumvent the typical rules of banking, creating a safe haven for those who couldn't afford to have their money scrutinized, including the Medellin cartel, multiple military dictators, and even the CIA. Before we get started, if you want to support the show, please rate it and go follow the show's Instagram and Twitter pages at the Pod, and please feel free to reach out. Also, consider giving a little bit to the show's Venmo at the Black Hand Pod as well. The link's in the description. But without further ado, let's get right into today's episode. Aga Hassan Abedi was born on May 14th, 1922, in Lucknow, British India, to an Urdu speaking Muhajir middle class family with members who even served as advisors and couriers to the Nawab of Awadh. The title of rulers who governed the state of Awadh in North India during the 18th and 19th centuries. Though Abedi would be a product of the unique conditions of Muslim India in the final period of British rule and the first years of independence. Years of fundamental change in the region that involved the creation of an entirely new ruling class in both Hindu and Muslim India to replace the departing British. And while the period created special opportunities for a newly emerging professional class in both countries, Abedi and many of the others who later became prominent in Pakistani banking made up a special class. In India, they had grown up as members of a minority, ones which were considered lower status than similarly educated Hindus despite their university educations. So following partition, or the end of British rule in India, these Indian Muslims migrated north to the new Muslim state of Pakistan, but remained forever regarded as outsiders by the natives. Accordingly, as they settled in the newly developed cities like Karachi and Lahore, they formed a class of Muslim professionals who kept themselves apart from other Pakistanis. Abedi himself was especially suited to succeed in the post-colonial environment, given his family's experience in northern India in Mahmudabad, where his father served the Raja, or ruler. At the Raja's court, Abedi was exposed to massive wealth, and to the concept that access to it could be achieved by anyone who managed to make himself indispensable to the person who controlled such wealth. He also learned that the previously unchanging laws of the British colonial power could be changed at whim by the new Indian and Pakistani rulers that followed. And that as often as not, legal obstacles to any goal could be eliminated if they interfered with the plans of a sufficiently important political figure. And these were lessons that Abedi would apply throughout his career as a banker and at the core of BCCI's history. He got his start in banking in the late 1940s after the Habib family of India, a modern-day familial business dynasty, set up a bank in Bombay, India. At which point, they started hiring young graduates as trainee officers. And among the first was a young man named Aga Hassan Abedi, who they hired after they moved their bank to a newly formed Pakistan in 1947. And the Habibs ran their bank like a family business, because it really was one. All decisions were centralized, with family members working long hours. And Abedi rose very rapidly through this system, but soon found that the atmosphere was too restrictive for the large number of ideas that he had. So after 11 years of service, in 1958, he left Habib Bank and was able to gather investors to form a new bank to be known as United Bank. The central bank in Pakistan gave him the license and was happy with his statements that he wanted to form the largest bank in the young country. And sure enough, within 10 years, United Bank became the second largest in Pakistan. Additionally, the bank had opened branches overseas, including quite a few countries in the Middle East. The bank was already poised to become the largest bank in Pakistan, but political conditions were making it apparent to Abedi that Pakistan probably wouldn't be able to form the basis for an operation the size that he wanted. His earliest successes came largely as a result of him recognizing the importance of providing payoffs or other under-the-table services to Pakistani officials, especially the leadership of any current governing party. For example, when the United Bank was formed in 1959, Abedi appointed I.I. Chandragar, the former Prime Minister of Pakistan, as chairman. He was a close confidant of Pakistan's then-current Prime Minister, Ayub Khan, and as a result, Abedi was also able to maintain close ties to the Khan government, later hiring Khan's Minister of Information to become the publisher of a BCCI promotional magazine. And when the Pakistani military government was replaced following a skirmish that resulted in the severance of eastern Pakistan into Bangladesh, Abedi became just as close to Pakistani socialist Ali Bhutto who served as the country's fourth president. And when Budo was overthrown in a 1978 military coup, Abedi quickly changed allegiances again to Budo's successor, General Zia. Zia later executed Budo for financial crimes in which Abedi, among others, were clearly involved, while forming close ties to Abedi. Abedi also sought out key pillars of the Pakistani private sector, securing the Saigol family as a client of Abedi's in three successive banks, Habib, United, and then BCCI. The Saigol group was one of the major industrial and trade groups in Pakistan by the mid-1950s, with its initial fortune coming from textiles, and were as close to old wealth as one could get within Pakistan's commercial class. Abedi first secured the Saigal account while at Habib and took the account with him when he left to form United Bank, making the Saigals United's principal shareholders. At the time, some in Pakistan's commercial community wondered how Abedi had managed to take the important Saigal relationship from the Habib Bank. Then, 30 years later, It was found that the reason was Abedi's willingness to reschedule millions in loans to the cycles whenever they found it convenient to repay them. And it was through these and similar relationships that Abedi was able to build United Bank into the second largest bank in Pakistan, complete with a protocol department responsible for taking care of the personal needs of VIPs. And by the early 1970s, there was an ongoing tension between Abedi's ambition to move beyond Pakistan and that of the Pakistani government to keep Pakistani institutions in general, and his bank fell specifically under their control. From the time he took power, Pakistani Prime Minister Ali Bhutto was threatening to nationalize the banks, as he had already nationalized other sectors. Accordingly, Abedi began moving forward with the initial steps to form BCCI as a Pakistani-managed bank outside of Pakistan. And when Bhutto, in turn, learned about Abedi's attempt to circumvent his new socialist order, he not only went ahead with his plans for nationalizing the United Bank, but promptly placed Abedi under house arrest. While under house arrest, he further developed his scheme for his new institution, And unlike United Bank, it would operate in a manner to defy the ability of the Pakistani government, or any other, to impede any objective it might seek. It would be the first global, international, and transnational bank. Up to this stage, in the early 1970s, there were mostly national banks and savings banks. The few banks that were international were colonial banks from Britain, France, Germany, and lately, from America. So they were normally not international, they were really just big national banks of countries that were international and network only. So he thought that if a genuinely global bank was started, bridging all the third world countries, as well as some first world countries, there would be a unique banking structure that could be very useful socially and also very profitable. The nationalization of Pakistani banking, which provided the impetus for BCCI, also ensured that BCCI would retain the Saigal relationship, as a substantial portion of their businesses were also nationalized by Bhutto in 1972. Nationalization also provided other Pakistani businessmen with powerful motivation to find a bank that couldn't be controlled by the Pakistani government. The most important of these proved to be the Gokul brothers, Pakistanis who became owners of the largest shipping empire in the world through BCCI lending, with a business that ultimately included commodity trading, general trading, manufacturing, financial service, and real estate. In addition to freeing them from the threat of Pakistani appropriation, BCCI provided both the Seigles and the Gokuls with one key service that no other bank could provide, the freedom to defer repayment of past loans and to borrow new money at will. Moreover, both clients received a special privilege similar to that afforded to BCCI's own officers. When something went wrong and they lost money, BCCI would help them cover it up. This was a matter of not just loyalty to one intimate business associate, but it was also a matter of sound business practice, as recognizing losses on the loans would have hurt BCCI's balance sheets. But he still needed to create the bank in the first place, and for this, he needed five things. First, he needed a bank secrecy and confidentiality haven, which he found first in Luxembourg and then in the Grand Caymans second was a source of capital two and a half million dollars to be exact which Abedi ultimately obtained from bank of america supplemented by another five hundred thousand dollars from sheikh zayed of abu dhabi a third was a source of initial assets worth at least a hundred million dollars of which at least half were provided as deposits by sheikh zayed fourth was a group of like-minded pakistanis to operate the banks and they were now widely available as a result of Budo's nationalization of their banks. And lastly, he needed credibility in the international community through a relationship with an established Western financial institution, which would provide prestige to BCCI, but not interfere with its unique approach to banking. And this, too, was provided by Bank of America during BCCI's formative years, But in the end, the most critical of these five elements was the relationship between BCCI and Abu Dhabi. Abu Dhabi was the largest and wealthiest member of the United Arab Emirates, an oil-rich federation of sheikdoms with a combined population of under 1.5 million. Bordering on Saudi Arabia and Oman with one of the world's highest standards of living as a result of oil wealth. Like all of the Gulf Sheikdoms, Abu Dhabi was one unusual among modern states, in that its ruler and the ruling family owned all the land and natural resources in the country, with no distinctions being made among the wealth of the ruler, his family, and the nation itself. As early as 1967, Abedi's high net worth customers included the ruler of Abu Dhabi, Sheikh Zayed, and his family. He was the recently installed head of a newly wealthy oil state who owed his power to a British coup against his brother in 1966. The brother had been deposed for having been unwilling to spend Abu Dhabi oil revenues for any purpose, including easing conditions for members of the British Foreign Service posted there. But after installing Sheikh Zayed, British officials had failed to pay attention to his desire to be taken seriously as an important political leader. By contrast, Abedi viewed the sheikh as a potentially important resource. By one account, the relationship began when Abedi made the decision to fly to Abu Dhabi in 1966 to solicit the right of the United Bank to take deposits from the thousands of Pakistani workers assisting in its modernization. Traveling with one assistant and bringing an oriental rug as a gesture of goodwill, Abedi secured Sheikh Syed's permission for the United Bank to open a branch in Abu Dhabi. And by 1967, what had started with Abedi handling the Sheikh's hunting trips in Pakistan and the finances of Pakistani workers in Abu Dhabi wound up with Abedi running the Sheikh's financial life. As far as Pakistani bankers watching from the outside in were concerned, Abedi was coordinating everything for the sheikh. From the building of his palaces in Pakistan, the furnishing of his villas in Morocco and Spain, to even planning his medical appointments. From the point of view of BCCI, Sheikh Zayed and his family were ill-equipped to handle the demands of a modern world and in the early days were dependent on Abedi and his bank for their every need. And among BCCI officers, it was believed that the United Arab Emirates itself owed its creation to Abedi, who came up with the idea as a means of reducing instability among the Gulf Emirates and increasing the stature of Sheikh Syed. And it's absolutely clear from BCCI documents that Abedi's relationship with the Sheikh of Abu Dhabi was the foundation of the establishment of the bank, without which, BCCI never could have existed. Throughout the first critical decade of BCCI's 18-year existence, as much as 50% of their overall assets were from Abu Dhabi and the Sheikh's family, which was earning about $750 million a year in oil revenues in the early 1970s, an amount that rose to nearly $10 billion a year by the end of the decade. Until the formation of a separate alliance, the Bank of Credit and Commerce Emirates, BCCI functioned as the official bank for the Gulf Emirates and handled a substantial portion of Abu Dhabi's oil revenues. And yet, from the beginning, there was an oddity about this central relationship, because at no time while Abedi was in charge of BCCI, did Abu Dhabi hold more than a small share of BCCI's recorded shares and Abu Dhabi appears to not have capitalized on the bank, but instead to have insisted on guaranteed rates of return for the use of its money. Abedi used the expression providence to describe the deal he had made with Sheikh Zayed, but there would have been a number of compelling reasons for Zayed to respond to Abedi's offer. Sheikh Zayed was financially unsophisticated and in need of assistance from someone he could trust to handle his finances in a manner that would meet his personal, cultural, and political needs. These included the need for secrecy as to the location and size of his wealth, given the political instability within the region, and the need to adhere to Islamic law through structuring transactions so that they could be more profitable and safe, Without the payment of interest in violation of that law. Moreover, there was no one within Abu Dhabi that the Sheikh could trust to provide the adequate secrecy. Regardless, Abedi had already been attending all of the Sheik's personal needs in Pakistan for five years, demonstrating his ability to make the relationship worry free for the Sheikh. And as a result of their agreement, Abedi now had essentially unlimited resources to create BCCI. He can now act simultaneously as the manager of billions of the sheikh's personal wealth, as a banker to the United Arab Emirates, of which the sheikh was a chief of state, and as a chairman of a new bank that had guaranteed assets worth hundreds of millions of dollars from its inception. More than that, Sheik Zayed was accustomed to the use of nominees, as nominee purchases were frequently employed whenever he wished to buy anything to avoid the price increasing if his name had been mentioned as part of the negotiations. One consequence of this arrangement, however, was that Abedi's success was overly dependent on his relationship with Abu Dhabi and its assets. He was managing the sheik's resources, had use of them, and if he didn't meet the sheik's needs, he could lose everything. Recognizing his independence, Abedi made it a practice to ensure that BCCI would provide whatever the sheiks required whenever he or his family wanted it. As BCCI records show, payments, often characterized as loans, were made to members of the Abu Dhabi royal family on an as needed basis without any regard as to whether these same resources were also being committed elsewhere. And with Abedi relying on the sheik's resources to finance his rapid expansion, BCCI's finances quickly became so intermingled with the finances of Abu Dhabi that it was difficult even for the bank insiders to determine where one left off and the other began. But although Abedi now had a large source of assets for BCCI, the sheik of Abu Dhabi couldn't provide him with credibility in the West. His first choice for a prestigious Western partner, American Express, insisted on having a major say in BCCI's management, which he couldn't tolerate. In his search for a more compliant partner brought him to Bank of America, which in 1972 was one of the most aggressive U.S. international banks with a presence in Iran and Pakistan. For BCCI, a relationship with Bank of America would provide recognition in the West and access to Bank of America's global network for correspondent banking. And for Bank of America, BCCI provided a potentially lucrative entry into Arab oil wealth at a tiny capitalization cost of $2.5 million. So following a lunch in San Francisco, Bank of America agreed to provide the money and to be a passive partner in BCCI permitting Abedi to run the operation as he pleased. But with only $3 million in total capital to start, Abedi kept the bank's initial overhead down by playing to his crowd of employees. He made the founder group shareholders of BCCI and put them to work in a tiny office in Abu Dhabi. And working conditions in Abu Dhabi, as well as at BCCI in the early days, were extremely primitive but more easily accepted by the Pakistani bankers than they were by the Western ones. At the same time, Abedi relied on senior Bank of America officials to sit on BCCI's board of directors, to recruit additional bankers, and to approve all major loans made by the bank. And although Abu Dhabi's royal family had a key interest in BCCI from its creation, in accord with their failure to provide the initial funds for capitalization, BCCI's early stock records didn't show the royal family as the owner of the bank. A snapshot of BCCI's shares from Bank of America files from 1977 showed the bank's majority owner as ICIC at 50%, its most important minority owner as Bank of America at 30%, and its largest Arab owner as Majid al-Futayim of Dubai in the United Arab Emirates at just 4%, while the members of Abu Dhabi's royal family owned just 3.5%. This list indicated that the Pakistanis actually owned BCCI at a time when the outside world thought the bank was owned by oil-rich Middle Eastern Arabs, including the ruling families of Bayron, Dubai, Saudi Arabia, and Iran, as well as that of Abu Dhabi. That picture was complicated even further by the fact that ICIC wasn't the owner of its shares of BCCI on the share register of the bank in Luxembourg. Instead, several of the shareholders on the register were acting as nominees for BCCI according to the Bank of America records. Moreover, some of the subsidiaries owned by the bank also relied on nominees, and by the late 1970s, ICIC was the record controller of as much as 70% of BCCI when all was told. But even at the time, bank officers were told that ICIC really only owned about 30% of the bank. A further difficulty in establishing the ownership was that ICIC was borrowing very substantial amounts from BCCI with inadequate documentation, with the result being, for all intents and purposes, that BCCI was repeatedly buying itself and using various nominees along the way to hide this fact. Regardless, as a privately held company, BCCI was obliged to no one to provide detailed information about their shareholders, and they made it a practice to never reveal exactly who owned how much of the bank. However, In direct contradiction to BCCI's obsessive secrecy about the actual facts of its ownership, Abetti heavily publicized the fact that most of the important royal families of the oil-rich states of the Middle East were shareholders from the start, and were therefore ostensibly backing the bank with their infamous oil wealth. But what the outside world didn't know was that in every case, with the possible exception of Zayed's and Abu Dhabi's acknowledged shareholding in BCCI, these backers had been provided hold harmless agreements by the bank, providing them guarantees against loss, and that the interest in BCCI held by these royal families had been essentially provided to them by a betty as a gift accompanied by generous terms on lending and other BCCI services. Several of the larger shareholders registered by this point included Wabul Feroen with 11.5%, Mohammed Hamoud with 35 Abdul Raouf Khalil, the Saudi government's intelligence liaison to the United States and other foreign governments, with 3%, and Kamal Adam, Khalil's predecessor as Saudi intelligence chief, with 3% and they were acting as BCCI's nominees for ownership of its own shares through guarantees that prevented them from being at risk. But eventually, the Abu Dhabi royal family would take full legal title of BCCI, increasing its share to over 78% of all bank shares, with the new shares obtained entirely from those formerly held by nominees. But regardless of the owner, throughout the 1970s, BCCI expanded rapidly, with the Betty adding new corporate members to the bank every month. Initially, BCCI was incorporated in one location only, which was Luxembourg. But just two years later, a holding company was created, called BCCI Holdings, with the bank underneath it, called BCCSA, split into two parts. BCCISA, with head offices in Luxembourg, and BCCI overseas, with head offices in the Grand Caymans. Luxembourg was used mostly for BCCI's European and Middle East locations, while the Grand Caymans were mostly for third world countries. The structure was intentionally further complicated by the establishment of a series of additional entities used as quote-unquote parallel banks, by BCCI as needed for financial manipulations. These parallel entities included the Kuwait International Finance Company and a Swiss bank, both of which BCCI had an ostensibly minority interest in, as well as the National Bank of Oman and the series of entities based in the Grand Caymans and collectively known as ICIC, which became the main bank within a bank at BCCI. In the cases where bccis official interest was minority its apparent lack of control was the consequence of local regulations prohibiting a foreign bank from owning a majority share but each time the bank found ways to evade these regulations through the use of frontmen or nominees and wound up being able to direct the operations of these institutions as if they were fully owned subsidiaries BCCI's aggressive drive for expansion was pressured by a financial strategy that pursued asset growth rather than profitability as the key to success. This approach was a necessity because of the underlying lack of working capital as well as BCCI's high startup costs. The idea was that, through rapid growth, the bank would eventually fill the holes in its capital through commissions on its frenzy of activity. In the meantime, growth could disguise temporary operating losses through some creative bookkeeping. In fact, the growth didn't end the losses, but merely intensified the underlying capital problem, because BCCI needed to increase its retained capital in order to show an adequate cushion for its billions in new assets. To implement this approach... Bank officers were directed to focus their attention on individuals and entities who controlled large sums of cash, people like central bank officials, heads of state, and black marketeers, and offered them terms significantly better than the terms offered by competing banks or services, such as kickbacks and freedom from documentation, which the competition wasn't willing to provide. And this expansion was fueled in part by mass infusions of petrodollar deposits from Gulf state rulers during the heyday of the OPEC years. The bank's early growth was exponential, especially in the United Arab Emirates, the Sultanate of Oman, as well as Yemen and Bahrain. Overall, BCCI expanded from 19 branches in 5 countries in 1973 to 27 branches in 1974 and 108 branches by 1976, with assets growing from $200 million to $1.6 billion. And after consolidating its position in the Middle East, the bank identified Africa as the next area for expansion. A number of African countries possessed many of the traits that BCCI had learned to exploit in the Middle East. Autocratic rulers that controlled most of the wealth of their nations, as well as primitive working conditions for bankers, which discouraged Westerners and non-Western attitudes towards the payment of gratitudes as a cost of doing business. African expansion began in Egypt, Sudan, and Mauritius, and by 1979, extended into Kenya, Swaziland, Liberia, Nigeria, and Sierra Leone. Typically, BCCI operated in these countries in a corrupt environment, marked by cash bribes, kickbacks to senior central bank officials of the nation involved, and special arrangements with the heads of state. And as a consequence of its willingness to do things that most western banks weren't, BCCI soon became the largest foreign bank operating in Africa. The third phase of BCCI's growth targeted Asia. It included the acquisition of the Hong Kong Metropolitan Bank from the Swiss Bank Corporation. This branch of the BCCI later became the vehicle for handling very large transactions by the Chinese government, whose business Abetti was able to secure through a mixture of public charitable activities and private kickbacks. At the same time, BCCI decided to expand into the Americas, opening offices in Canada as well as branches in the United States, Venezuela, Colombia, Panama, and Jamaica. And by the mid-1980s, BCCI's empire extended to banks or branches in 73 countries and assets totaling around $2.2 billion. Their amazing rate of growth continued in good years and bad without regard to macroeconomic conditions. For example, in Hong Kong from 1983 to 84, the bank prospered while other foreign banks were forced to retrench due to economic downturn. This was repeated in the United Arab Emirates during a slump that began around 1983 because of the fall in oil prices, and in Nigeria in the late 1980s, a time when other foreign banks withdrew from operations there. As a technique for ensuring security and control, Abedi adopted a strategy taken from intelligence operations. He compartmentalized information about BCCI. Compartmentalization ensured that even within the bank, officers in one operation would have little to no information about the nature of the activities of an officer in another area. Not only was information about the bank's activities closely held, but even senior officials were discouraged by Abedi from asking questions. And instead of having vice presidencies, the bank had 50 senior executives and 198 managers, with only two people considered to be higher up than all others, Abedi and his chief assistant. It was structured in such a way that no single country had overall regulatory supervision over it, so as not to hinder potential growth and expansion opportunities. Its two holding companies were based in Luxembourg and the Cayman Islands, two jurisdictions where banking regulation was notoriously weak. It also wasn't regulated by a country that had a central bank. On several occasions, the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency, a bureau within the U.S. Department of the Treasury, told the Federal Reserve, in no uncertain terms, the BCCI must not be allowed to buy any American bank because it was poorly regulated, likely because Abedi's unique approach to banking had the effect of removing checks and balances on BCCI. Other senior officers didn't have a complete picture of BCCI's operations, while the board of directors learned a little beyond what Abedi told them, and outsiders, including the bank's auditors, could be easily manipulated. But it was clear that the system worked, because by 1980, the bank was reported to have assets worth over $4 billion, with 150 branches in 46 countries. Bank of America was even quote-unquote bewildered by BCCI, and even reduced its holding in 1980. At which point, BCCI came to be held by a number of groups, with ICIC owning 70%. Then, in 1982, 15 Middle Eastern investors bought Financial General Bank Shares, a large bank holding company headquartered in Washington, D.C. All the investors were BCCI clients, but the federal government received assurances that the bank would be in no way involved in the management of the company, which was renamed First American Bank Shares. To alleviate regulators' concerns, Clark Clifford, a political advisor to five presidents, was named First American's chairman. Clifford headed a board composed of himself and several other distinguished American citizens, including former U.S. Senator Stuart Symington. But in reality, BCCI had been involved in the purchase of First American from the beginning. Abetti had been approached about buying it as early as 1977, but by this point, BCCI's reputation in the United States was so poor that it couldn't even hope to buy an American bank on its own. Rather, it used the investors in First American as nominees or frontmen. Moreover, Clifford's law firm was retained as general counsel and also handled most of the bank's American legal work. BCCI was also heavily involved in First American personnel meetings, The relationship between the two institutions was even so close that rumors spread about BCCI being the real owner of First American, but they were about to have bigger problems to deal with. In general, BCCI had an unusual annual auditing system. Price Waterhouse were the accountants for BCCI overseas, while Ernst & Young audited BCCI and BCCI Holdings while other companies associated to the bank, like ICIC, weren't audited by either. However, in October 1985, the Bank of England and the Monterey Institute of Luxembourg ordered BCCI to change to a single accountant, alarmed by reported bank losses on the commodities and financial markets. And just two years later, Price Waterhouse became the bank's sole accountant. Then, in 1990, A Pricewaterhouse audit revealed an unaccountable loss of hundreds of millions of dollars. So BCCI approached Sheikh Zayed, who made good on the loss in exchange for an increased shareholding of 78%. Much of the bank's documentation was then transferred to Abu Dhabi. The audit also revealed numerous irregularities the most serious of which was that BCCI had made a staggering $1.5 billion worth of loans to its own shareholders, who used stock in the bank as collateral. The audit also confirmed what many Americans who watched the bank long suspected, that they secretly and illegally owned First American. When the federal government cleared the group of Arab investors to buy First American, It did so on the condition that they supplement their personal funds with money borrowed from banks with no connection to BCCI. But contrary to that agreement, several stockholders had borrowed heavily from BCCI. Even more seriously, they pledged their first American stock as collateral. So when they failed to make interest payments, BCCI took control of the shares, and it was later estimated that in this manner... BCCI had ended up with 60% or more of First American stock, giving them effective control. Despite these problems, Price Waterhouse signed BCCI's 1989 annual report, largely due to Sheikh Zayed's firm commitment to propping up the bank. But in the following year, Abedi stepped down as the bank's chief after suffering a heart attack in 1990 and essentially retired. However, things just got worse for BCCI because in the wave of skepticism that surrounded the bank following their 1990 audit, BCCI contended that their growth was fueled by the increasingly large number of deposits from oil-rich states that owned stock in the bank, as well as by sovereign developing nations. But this claim failed to satisfy the regulators. For example, the Bank of England ordered BCCI to cap its branch network in the United Kingdom at 45 branches. There was a particular concern over the bank's loan portfolio because of its roots in areas where modern banking was still a foreign concept. For instance, a large number of its customers were devout Muslims who were against charging interest on loans, a major pillar of modern banking, because they consider it to be usury. In many third world countries, a person's financial standing didn't matter as much as his relationship with his banker. One notable example of this was the Gokul family, a prominent family of shipping magnates. The three brothers that owned the group had a relationship with Betty dating back to his days a united bank. So Betty personally handled their loans with little regards for details, such as loan documents or credit worthiness. At one point, the bank's loans to the Goku companies were equivalent to $1.2 billion, three times the bank's actual capital, despite long-standing bank practices that dictated that a bank shouldn't lend more than 10% of its capital to a single customer. And of course, this codependent relationship would cause problems for the bank. Because by 1978, the Gokul group was in financial trouble, Which meant that BCCI's loans were as well. So, to hide its losses, the bank funneled money, often unrecorded deposits from elsewhere in the bank, into the Gokul accounts to make it appear that loan repayments were up to date when they really weren't. Most times, the funds were routed through BCCI shell companies, and other times, payment documents were simply faked. As a result, the bank's troubled loan portfolio was now $3 billion including a billion dollars worth of bad loans that had been transferred to the government of Abu Dhabi after Sheikh Sayed's purchase of controlling interest in the bank in 1990. Another $1 billion dollars had gone to just three borrowers, including a Saudi financer, a former Saudi intelligence chief, and of course, the Gokul Group. So BCCI concealed deposits to bring its accounts into balance, and altogether, the bank hid more than $600 million in deposits. The biggest chunk, which amassed $358 million, came from an institution identified only as tumbleweed. The bank then loaned money out to depositors against the unrecorded deposits. And while BCCI's actions likely would have attracted attention in a more carefully regulated environment like the U.S., The bank operated without regulatory oversight for years as a result of its decentralized structure. But the bank's dark side encompassed more than just bank fraud, as BCCI was at least a frequent conduit, if not an outright collaborator in questionable activities. In addition to the violation of lending laws, BCCI was also accused of opening accounts or laundering money for figures like Saddam Hussein. Manuel Noriega, former Bangladesh military dictator Hussein Muhammad Ersad, and former Liberian president Samuel Doe, as well as for criminal organizations like the Medellin Cartel and the Abu Nadal terrorist cell. Police and intelligence experts even nicknamed BCCI, the Bank of Crooks, and Criminals International, for its penchant to cater to customers who dealt in arms, drugs, and dirty money. Two bankers that headed the Panamanian branch of BCCI in the early 1980s even assisted Manuel Noriega with his accounts with the bank. William Von Robb, a former U.S. Commissioner of Customs, also told the Kerry Committee that the CIA had several accounts at BCCI, And according to a 1991 Time magazine article, the National Security Council also had accounts at the bank, which were used for a variety of covert operations, including transfers of money and weapons during the Iran-Contra affair. The bank's downfall began in 1986 when an undercover U.S. customs operation led by Special Agent Robert Mazur infiltrated the bank's private client division in Tampa, Florida, and uncovered their role in pocketing deposits from drug traffickers and money launderers. This two-year undercover operation concluded in 1988 with a fake wedding attended by BCCI officers and drug dealers from around the world who had established a personal friendship and working relationship with Agent Mazur. At the same time, he was dealing with bank executives while undercover using his undercover operation to establish a relationship with the Medellin cartel as one of their sources for laundering drug proceeds. As a result of the investigation, in 1988, the bank was implicated for being the center of a major money laundering scheme. And after a six-month trial, the bank pleaded guilty in 1990. Then, in March 1991, the Bank of England asked Price Waterhouse to carry out an inquiry as a result, Price Waterhouse submitted the Sandstorm report, showing that BCCI had engaged in widespread fraud and manipulation, which made it difficult, if not impossible, to reconstruct the bank's financial history. At the time, BCCI was awaiting final approval for a restructuring plan that would see the bank reemerge as the Oasis Bank. But after the Sandstorm report. Regulators concluded that the bank was so fraught with problems that it had to be seized. And on July 5, 1991, regulators pursued a court in Luxembourg to order BCCI to be liquidated, on the grounds that it was insolvent. Then, a few weeks after the seizure, on July 29th, a Manhattan grand jury indicted BCCI and Aga Hassan Abedi on 12 counts of fraud, money laundering, and larceny. He and the bank were then brought up on federal charges on November 1991 for using a puppet owner to run a bank in Los Angeles. And just a month later, the bank's liquidators pleaded guilty to all criminal charges pending against the bank in the United States, clearing the way for the bank's formal liquidation that fall. And when it was all said and done, BCCI paid $10 million in fines and forfeited all $550 million worth of their American assets. The largest single criminal forfeiture ever obtained by federal prosecutors at the time. Regardless, many of the major players in the scandal have never been brought to trial in American or UK courts, like a Betty who died in 1995. He was under indictment in the US and UK for crimes related to BCCI, but Pakistani officials refused to give him up for extradition because they felt that the charges were politically motivated. And although major litigation ended in the case, suits and legal actions relating to the bank were still being brought in 2013, over 20 years after the bank's failure. But that's really all I have for you guys today. I hope you all thoroughly enjoyed today's show and tune back in next week for episode 52. If you enjoyed today's show, please give it a rating and follow the show's Instagram and Twitter pages at the black hand pod. And please feel free to reach out with feedback suggestions and comments. Also, please consider giving a little bit to the show's Venmo at the black hand pod as well. But with that said, I hope you all have a great rest of your day. This is your host, Bliss Grieve, signing out.